blessed, I assure you. So there's a phrase that was very common when I first came into the church about 20 years ago. And I, I concede and I recognize that even at the time, as much as I look back on it with fond memories, it was cliche at the time. It was very common to use, very rare to actually implement, but nonetheless, it was a part of our vernacular in the church, which has really long since kind of gone out of vogue. But the phrase itself had a very distinct ring to it. It spoke of an awareness that most of our anxious questions and concerns and decisions are left outside of our immediate control. It was this willingness to concede, whether just by, by a statement, that we are not in control. As scary as that sounds. It's a phrase that is used in the scriptures in times of prayer. We see the ancients use it. We see it in the garden of suffering. And in moments of stark confusion, this, this simple phrase, your will be done. Or the will of the Lord be done. What would you say? Si Dios quiere? Uh-huh. That's in Espanol, see? Uh -huh. That is no matter what my wants or my desires or my plan or my dream or my comfort or my goal, all of it submits itself to the ultimate will of God, which has become far less common for us to use as a phrase and I think far less common of a concept for us to even consider what is the will of the Lord in my life, our life, our church's life, and how important is it that we seek that out and, and strive to live it out? I think in many ways, we've attempted to devise a world, to devise a world where seeking the will of God isn't absolutely all that necessary. I mean, think of this. The Lord's Prayer. When Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, he says, When you pray, pray thus like this. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come my will be done. Oh, wait, no. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us today our daily bread. And I think of this, and I, I'm going, we don't really actually need to pray that, do we? And we've kind of outsourced all that. Like, if we're hungry, we don't just have food. Man, we got fast food. We don't have to pray when we're in poverty. Like, I literally remember clinging to the God who owns cattle on a thousand hills, and now I'm like in poverty. I cling to Visa and MasterCard and payday advances. When there is illness, there used to be, hey, let's gather the elders to anoint and pray. Now I'm like, I need to get the doctor on the horn and get some medicine. I'm not negating the importance of medicine, by the way. When there's questions, we have Google. When there's loneliness, we have Facebook. When there's unemployment, we have ZipRecruiter and Indeed.com. When there's singleness, there's eHarmony. Thank goodness for that, right? When there is anxiety and boredom, there's Netflix, Hulu, Voodoo, Sling, Football, and Chicken Wings. When there's thirst, we literally have 3,000 different flavors of water. When there's curiosity, we have ebooks and e readers and podcasts. When there are weeds, we have Roundup. 
But all of this superficial and artificial and even toxic trapping of our technological age does not liberate us in the least from the greatest purpose in our life. The greatest purpose in your life, my life, our life is that the will of God is done. There's nothing greater than that is my overall argument today. And I will tell you, there is nothing that will steamroll you or semi-truck splash you into this awakening that there is a will of God like the reality of suffering. When we are faced with suffering and with hardship and difficulty and we are jarred awake from our superficial world of technological trapping and we are left to wrestle out how is it possible that God's will can not only incorporate but allow for suffering or sickness or sorrow or sadness or crushing or even death. So with that in mind, let's open our Bibles. Everybody say word. We are approaching this heavy topic through Acts chapter 21. We're going to start in chapter 20. As you remember from last week, Paul was having a discussion with a group of elders and pastors and shepherds from the city of Ephesus. They had met him in Miletus. And as Paul was sharing these final moments with these teachers and leaders and pastors, Paul began to relay what the will of God was for his life. It was very troubling. Starting in verse 22 of chapter 20, Paul said this, Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. I am constrained, that is, I'm being held and pushed by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, but this is what I know, except that the Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit of God. You're going to see the Holy Spirit speaking and moving throughout this passage. I have a question. Does the Holy Spirit still speak today? Does he still speak to us? Are we still led by the Holy Spirit? Will the Holy Spirit ever lead us to suffer? Ah, that's a tough one. The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But here's what I do. I don't account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received. Paul's saying, my life, my will, my plans, not more important than the ultimate will of God. He has given me a course. He has set me on a race. He has given me a ministry. Nothing is more important than me completing that. And he says to testify to the gospel of grace. And so as we turn to chapter 21, Paul has, has with just like a, a, like a hard edge, man, he is focused on getting to Jerusalem. And the scriptures tell us he wants to get there before Pentecost. It's important to Paul. So as Acts chapter 21 opens in verse 1, we see Paul and his associates and fellow missionaries literally prying themselves away from the elders at Ephesus. In verse 1 it says, when we had parted from them. Now, what's interesting about that that phrase, when we had parted, it doesn't really actually convey the full meaning. In, In Greek, it's more telling. It literally reads, and when we had pride ourselves away like the elders did not want to let them go 
Because they knew this is the last time we're going to see Paul's face and he's going to suffer. I mean, how tightly would you hold to somebody that you loved if you knew they were going to their death? Would you grab a hold of that person? You wouldn't want to let him go, would you? You would literally have to pry that person out of your kung fu grip. Nonetheless, they had to let go. It says, they set sail and we came straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come to the side of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. And for there, the ship was to unload its cargo. And when we read that, and we read passages like that in the scriptures, I don't know about you, but I'm like kind of like a Passover. Like I just go, name, 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 story. Do y'all do that? But this is important. There's a reason why we have a ship's manifest left for us here in the scriptures. And here's what it's telling us. Can we bring up a map? <laughs> map. And I have my laser pointer, which I did not have in first service. And they were very displeased, and they had no problem voicing their displeasure. So if you speak to anybody that was in the first service, just go, nah, 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 nah. He had it in the second service. Um, so here they are in Miletus, and they pry themselves away, and they sail to Kos and then to Rhodes. These are different ships that they're hopping on, and you'll see this straight shot to Tyre. What this ship's manifest is telling us, what we may not realize, this was no pleasure cruise. They were getting to Jerusalem in the absolute fastest possible way. They were only boarding ships that were making direct routes. And so what we may not realize is there's an urgency about getting to Jerusalem. And so they stop in the city of Tyre, and the first thing that they do is they go in search of other believers because they got to allow that ship to unload its cargo and to get more cargo, and so it takes about a week. And so in verse 4, it tells us in the text, and having sought out the disciples. So apparently at some point, there was a church planted in the city of Tyre, most likely during the dispersion of the great persecution that took place in the early parts of Acts. It says, we stayed there for seven days. Listen to this. And through the Spirit, this group of believers who most likely had never met Paul before, had heard of Paul, never met him, they have this sense of familial love for Paul. They were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Somebody tell me why they didn't want him to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer. And there are some commentators who will look at this verse and they will go, Paul was operating outside of the will of God because the Holy Spirit was telling him not to go. He goes anyway, the suffering beyond his own head. And there, there's nothing that could be further from the truth. Paul was not operating outside of the will of God. All that the Holy Spirit was doing was telling the church at Tyre, hey, this man is about to go to Jerusalem and suffer. The Holy Spirit never spoke to Paul and never told Paul to not go. God was just letting him know what was awaiting him. And as I look at that, I think there's oftentimes where well-intentioned, and I say well-intentioned, believers will come alongside of us and tell us, hey, it's not God's will for you to do dot, 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 even though you're like, yes, it is. I can remember when Madeline and I packed up our $500 pickup truck, it was sweet, um, in our little car, and we were going to drive to Dallas, Texas. And we had well-intentioned pastors and friends and family members confronting us, sitting us down, arguing with us, saying, it is impossible that it is God's will for you to go to Dallas. We were like, yes, it is God's will. And no, 
I'm not equating going to Dallas to going to Jerusalem and suffering and dying. I'm not saying those two things are so... <laughs> I realize how that may be interpreted. All I'm saying is there are times where well-intentioned believers or friends or family members will come alongside of us and tell us that we're crazy for doing something and we're going, no, 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 we're walking in faithfulness. And so these, these believers at Tyre were like, Paul, you're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going to suffer and die, don't go. Paul says, I have to go. I am submitting myself to the ultimate will and plan of God. So verse 5, they pry themselves away. It says, when our days were ended, we departed and we went on the journey. They all with their wives and children accompanying us until we're outside the city. The whole family of God and the community of Tyre led Paul and his associates outside of the city and they kneeled down on the beach. That phrase is repeated. And you know what kneeling means? It means submission. When we kneel ourselves. And some will ask me, Chris, what is the proper posture of prayer? Yes, we can pray standing with our hands raised. But I will tell you, there is no more applicable posture than kneeling. In fact, every Sunday before I stand before you, I kneel before him. I am not serving myself. It is a submission, a submitted stance. And they were saying, the Lord's will be done. They continue south very quickly. Verse 7, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. They're like, hey, how's it going? Got to go. They continue heading south. Verse 8, on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house. Check this out. This is crazy. Entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, as we read that, it's very quick to get through that and move on to the next verse. But before we do, I want to reorient our minds to who this Philip is. Think back all the way to chapter 6. The church is exploding in Jerusalem. And there's a great dispute that breaks out between the Hellenists and the Hebrew widows. When I mean by Hellenists, I mean Greek-speaking Jews, believers. And there was this big dispute that the Hellenists were being overlooked in the food distribution. And so the apostles set apart seven men full of the Holy Spirit who would wait the tables and ensure that there was equal distribution of food. Well, Philip was one of the seven. Also a guy by the name of Stephen. Y'all remember Stephen? In chapter 7, Stephen boldly preaches the gospel before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, and in that preaching pronounces judgment on his hearers for their rejection of Jesus. They didn't enjoy that, by the way. And they pronounced death on Stephen and dragged him outside of the city. And so that they could free up their throwing arms, they took off their coats and they laid him at whose feet? Saul of Tarshish who in chapter 8, seeing the blood of Stephen shed and how much joy it brought to the overarching culture of the Jewish people, set out to undertake a brutal, brutal persecution of the church. In fact, it was Saul of Tarsus who caused Philip to flee Jerusalem with his family. Philip took the gospel to Samaria, took the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch who ultimately reached Africa. Then Philip went back to Caesarea Continued ministry, had a family, four daughters. What a blessed man. 
four believing daughters who prophesied. That is, they spoke forth the word of God. And then 20 some odd years later, come knocking at his door, Saul of Tarsus, also known as Paul. What do you do when that person who horribly persecuted you, murdered your friend, drove you from your home, shows up at your door? I quote here from Warren Wearsby. He says this, Since Philip had been an associate of Stephen and Paul had taken part in Stephen's death, this must have been an interesting meeting. Isn't that an understatement? But you know what I find incredible? I don't believe there was a least bit of hesitation in Philip. I think he immediately extended the hand of fellowship and of grace. You see, what Philip understood and what Paul understood is that there is true power in forgiveness and not harboring resentment. And Philip may have had the will to see Paul suffer But his ultimate desire was to submit himself to the will of God, which was forgiveness. And he opens the door. Verse 10. While we were staying there for many days at Philip's house. I just can't even imagine wrapping my mind around bringing a murderer who murdered my friend and friends and drove me, inviting him into my home. It says, while we were staying many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. We've met Agabus before. Very briefly in chapter 11, he pronounced that there would be a famine under the emperor Claudius. He now is to come and deliver a far different famine, now a famine of incarceration. In verse 11, it says, In coming to us, Agabus took Paul's belt. I I don't know. If somebody walked up to me and asked to borrow my belt, my immediate thought would be like, why? But he gives up his belt, and then he binds his own hand and his feet, and, then, and this is what the Holy Spirit says. Listen to this. Again, does the Holy Spirit speak today? Agabus, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. I'd immediately be like, dude, you should have told me what you are going to use that for. Can I have that back now? Is that good news? Agabus takes Paul's belt, or literally his cloth, like his loincloth, and ties his hand and his feet. He's like the prophet of old. He doesn't just deliver the message. He delivers it in illustration. You're about to be bound, Paul. And as Paul's associates, and as the church at Caesarea were like coming face to face with the reality of what was about to happen to Paul, they immediately began to beg and to plead and to even badger Paul Don't go. Verse 12. And it's not even when they heard this, it's when we heard this. That tells us that Luke himself, the author of the book of Acts, was pleading with Paul. Tear-stained cheeks. Don't go. They're going to kill you, Paul. We love you. We and the people, we urged him not to go. It speaks of a continual urging. They kept pressuring him, don't go. And it literally was breaking Paul's heart into pieces. Verse 14 or verse 13, Paul answered, what are you doing, guys? Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? That phrase, breaking my heart, literally, why are you breaking my heart into a thousand little pieces? I'm not only ready to be imprisoned, 
but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He was ready to die. With complete and total abandonment, he had forsaken every shred of personal desire and free will. And as I look at this and I'm like, Paul's willingness to suffer and die for the sake of Christ and the gospel is only rivaled by one other person that I know of in the scriptures. A person who was willing to suffer and die in total submission of the will of the Father, even in view of his closest followers. I want you to briefly turn to the left in your Bible to Matthew chapter 16. It is an unbelievable passage of contrast. And it's a difficult contrast. Because as I read it, in one sense, Jesus is going to give high praise to one of his disciples for his faithfulness and truly what appears to be unbelievable divine revelation. And then in the next passage, he's going to immediately rebuke his disciple and say, get behind me, Satan. There's a lot of things that I want the Lord to call me. One of them is not Satan. So chapter 16 of Matthew starting in verse 22, or verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, this is not the same Caesarea that we're looking at in Acts 21. This is northeast of Caesarea. This is Caesarea Philippi. It's inland. He came to the district of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? I can't think of a more important question. It is a question that is being asked today. Who is Jesus? Who do people say? And there was a lot of contradictory ideas. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said more importantly, he said that may be the cultural discussion of who Jesus is, but who do you say that I am? And I will stress you as believers, there is nothing more important than the answer to that question. Who do you say Jesus is? To which Peter replies... And one of these moments where you're just going, whoa, what a faithful follower of Christ. He replied to Jesus, he said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. You are the Messiah of Israel. You are God of God. To which Jesus replied, Wow, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but this is divine revelation for my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, literally Petros, and upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Not that Peter is the first pope and upon the papal they build his church. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you are the rock, and upon your preaching and the testimony of the apostles, I will establish my church. And then I look at this, and I encourage you to strongly cue in on this because Jesus references the church twice in the Gospels. Here's one of them. And this is significant. I will give you the keys to the kingdom. That means, church, you have been given access. And not just delegated access, but authority. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged them to tell no one that he is the Christ. The divine secret of Jesus' earthly ministry. And this is significant. You are the Messiah. But even within 
the statement is a cloaked reference to suffering because he references the church that would be born out of the shedding of his own blood. And so in the very next context, the very next passage, Jesus then begins to expound upon the earthly ministry of Messiah and the Son of God in his first advent, to which Peter's like, that's impossible. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and what? What's the word? Suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day raised, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Why do you think Peter rebukes Jesus here? What's going on in, in Peter? I mean, we could say theologically he had a misunderstanding. He, he understood the Messiah to not be a suffering and dying Messiah, but a conquering and a ruling Messiah. We could look at it theologically, but could we look at it just on a, as a friend? What is Peter feeling right now? Sorrow. I don't want you to die or to suffer. To which Jesus replied, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That is the battle of the will. We live our life setting our mind, our life, our eyes on the things of man and not on the things of God. And it creates a battle of the wills. The disciples selfishly, and I say that with total awareness, of like our own human tendency. But they selfishly grab a hold of Jesus not wanting to let him go. But just as the disciples had to submit to the will of God, the friends and fellow missionaries and even Philip the evangelist had to submit to the will of God for Paul's life. Jesus would not be deterred from the cross. And no matter how much his well-intentioned friends, no matter... How great the illustration by the prophet Agabus, and not even through this continual begging of his friends would he stop his steps from Jerusalem. Speaking of Paul, verse 14 of chapter 21 of Acts. Jesus would not be deterred from the cross. Peter would not be deterred from Jerusalem. Ultimately submitting to the will of the Father. Verse 14. And since he would not be persuaded. Do you all sense a little bit of hopelessness in that? They kind of gave up. And then they make this concession. And I think this is the concession we finally reach when we realize we're not in control, and no matter how hard we try, we can't change it, and we ultimately have to submit. We ultimately get to this place of, let the will of the Lord be done. And instead of weakness, I would like to offer that as probably the strongest place we could be as believers. Let the will of the Lord be done be done. I am facing suffering. Let the will of the Lord be done. I'm facing hardship. Let the will of the Lord be done. He's calling me to leave something behind. Let the will of the Lord be done. It is a place where we finally concede our will to the will of God, and so they travel. From Caesarea, to Jerusalem, it's roughly 65 miles. We have no idea if they traveled by foot or by beast, but we do know they made their way to Caesarea. And I can imagine it was a pretty quiet caravan 
on their way. They had already begged. They had already pleaded. Let the will of the Lord be done. Verse 15. After these days, we got ready. We went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So they are staying at his house. Paul has officially arrived in Jerusalem. Let the will of the Lord be done, as we will see unfold next week. But a few applications uh, for us as we consider the will of the Lord. Um, As I reflect, there was a time in history when the church and her members were far more prone to seek the will of the Lord. And maybe, you know, it was cliche to some extent, but I still see historically the church was far more willing to submit to the will of the Lord. Christians would cross oceans, descend into deserts, venture into rainforests. They would airdrop into unreached cities, all for the opportunity of fulfilling the Lord's will and purposes for their lives. That what was most important to them was that the gospel would be carried to just one more person, one more people group, one more continent. Fortunes historically have been leveraged. Lives have been sacrificed And the world watches on in utter amazement at a people willingly sacrificing themselves to the ultimate will of something greater than themselves. When people like Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Udarian, who along with their wives and their family left the comfort and the security of the United States to spend years in preparation and months of intentional contact building relationships with an isolated ancient indigenous tribe in the remote jungles of Ecuador. In the 1950s, when the United States had reached an industrial boom. I mean, the contrast between the Depression era and post-World War II is staggering economically. We became the greatest economy in the world. The advancements in modern amenities. Some of you remember, first service, most of the people remember the amenities of the 1950s. And here, some of you remember the amenities of the 1950s. They were pretty incredible. Skyrocketing median household incomes. All happening at an alarm, just a a skyrocketing way. Uh, Birth of the middle class in suburbia. And they left it all behind to go to the jungles of Ecuador. People were like, what are you doing? Why are you leaving this all behind? Because of the will of God. And they went. And they left it all behind for the sake of 600 people. There were 600 people in the Hurani tribe in this remote, isolated forest of Ecuador. And to them, it was worth it. And they spent months building relationships and building goodwill and exchanging gifts with the Horani tribe until all five of the missionaries landed on a little sandbar January 3rd, 1956, all in hopes of building relationships with the Horani tribe. And it was exciting. And it was risky. And subsequently, five days later, through a massive misunderstanding... 
the Harani warriors slaughtered all five of the missionaries and cold blood speared them and, and hatcheted them to death. It shocked the world. Time magazine literally dedicated an entire magazine to trying to unpack, first, why they would go, and secondly, why they would suffer such a death. And that really isn't the greatest part of the story. The most staggering part of the story is the fact that Elizabeth Elliot, wife of Jim Elliot, slaughtered missionary, and sister, Rachel Saint, of Nate Saint, who was also slaughtered, returned to the Harani tribe, lavishing the love of God and sharing with them the message, not only that there is a creator, but a creator who sent his son, who died for our sins, was buried and raised, and gave them the first taste of grace. And they were doing that with some of the warriors that had slaughtered husband, brother, and fellow missionary. And I think, whoa, dude. The will of the Lord be done. And think of what's come from that. Thousands of missionaries followed in their footsteps. Countless thousands came to faith through their testimony. Here we are, many years later, still being moved by the same story. Billions of dollars flooded into missionary work. And as I look at that story, I'm like, that's so incredible. People willing to risk it. But then I've come to discover these stories are get, getting a little dusty. They're getting older. Because today... We are far more prone to say what God would never call us to do as opposed to express a willingness to do whatever he calls us to do. And there is a dramatically distinct difference. I think today, us as believers, and I think this is very common in North America, we come and we approach God and we're like, here's some things I'm willing to do and here are some things I'm not willing to do. And let's make sure we understand the difference. And truth be told, Lord, I don't really need you for my day-to-day -day stuff because I've already kind of got that. We've already technologically outsourced that, so it's all good. So I'm not asking a lot of you. Don't ask a lot of me. I have a question for you. If an ambassador of a particular country, let's just choose a country at random, of the United States, is being sent to represent the policy of the United States and other countries as a specific task, and that particular ambassador goes to that particular country, but once they get to that particular country, they decide, you know what? I'm going to reject the, the policy I'm supposed to uphold. I'm going to, I'm going to undertake my will and my purpose, and I'm going to completely reject who I represent as far as a country and as an ambassador. What would you call that ambassador? A traitor. Guilty of treason. We are ambassadors. We have been purchased at a price. We have been called by God to follow and to obey. When we willfully choose to not follow the will of God, we are willfully choosing rebellion and we are at best in posture a traitor against the kingdom of God. And I will tell you that the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God are not friends. 
And if you find yourself submitting to the kingdom of this world, you are at enmity with the kingdom of God. That sounds very heavy. So let me polish this out a little smoother so we can walk out of here with our heads a little bit higher than they are right now. Y'all okay with that? Because this is a little heavy. Because we have a battle of the wills. So I'll conclude here. We often reference these significant undertakings of individuals. We talk about Christ and the cross. We talk about Peter and his willingness to suffer. We talk of Paul's willingness to suffer. And we see them in these very dramatic moments. But I'll tell you, it didn't start there. For the disciples, it started with a little yes. He said, follow me. Yes. I will make you fishermen of men. Yes. Carry this message and this circuit of preaching around Galilee. Yes. When I rise, you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. No. You will submit. Yes. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the outermost parts of the world. Yes. You will suffer and you will die for the sake of the gospel. Yes. Family, it starts with little yeses. My encouragement to you this week is we all have a battle within us, the battle of the wills. Come to the Lord with the willingness to say, I will say yes. And the more that becomes normal for us, lots of little yeses will one day lead up to the big yes. It doesn't start there. But it starts with a willingness to say yes today. Amen? Lord Jesus, we come before you with a willingness to say yes. With a humble heart, prayerfully a humble heart, we approach you with. I pray that our first yes to you is yes to you as our Savior. To you, friend, who do not have Jesus as your Savior, please listen. Jesus died for your sins on the cross. He was slaughtered for your sins. He was buried in the grave, and on the third day he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. He is life. The Bible declares all who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I want you to understand that apart from Jesus, you have no life, no true life, no spiritual life. And so today, if you feel yourself being called to him, and you finally want to bend your knee or willing to bend your knee and say yes to his salvation in the quietness of your heart, tell him, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe that you died for me. I believe you were buried. I believe you've risen. Please, Jesus, save my life. If that is your heart's prayer, you have passed from death to life, from blindness to sight. You're forever a son or a daughter of God. Welcome to the family. Now, Lord, please, Holy Spirit, lead us this week to be a people of yes. Here we are, Lord. Send us. In your precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, y'all, let's stand together. I wonder what the first thing he's going to ask us to do this week. Go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. 
help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So we'll meet again, same time, same place next week. And do not forget, family, you are love. Now go tell the world, go proclaim to the world that they are too. Say yes this week. We'll see you next time. Oh